Hi there, I'm your host Marlene McConnell and welcome to the Surviving Trauma Stories of Hope podcast. In this week's episode, I am thrilled to welcome the lovely Dr. Avi Sakatupulo from her home in New York. Avi explores some riveting questions in her new book, Sexuality Beyond Consent. Rather than buy into the notion that trauma can be cured, she reroutes our attention to what traumatized subjects do with their pain. Concerned with forms of sexuality that lay beyond consent, Avi discusses why such a sexuality may be worth risking and explain how risk can become a way of soliciting the future. She argues that those who surrender to the fact that their pain cannot be eliminated can sometimes do things with trauma. Central to the transformational possibilities of trauma is a queer form of consent. Limit consent that is not about guarding the self, but about risking experience. The erotics of racism offers a paradigmatic example of how what is proximal to a violation may become an unexpected site of flourishing. The book concludes by theorizing currents of sadism that when pursued ethically can animate unique forms of interpersonal and social care. It has been a pleasure to have Avi join me and I know you will love this episode. And please head on over to the show notes and get a copy of this phenomenal book. Thank you to my listeners for joining me on this journey. Comment on the posts on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and let me know what you think. Also comment on Avi's posts. The link will be in the show notes. Also head to amazon.com, takealot.com, and get your copy of my book, Ray of Light. And please leave me a rating and review. As you guys know, it means the world to me to get those ratings. Also, please check out my website. And if you haven't yet, download your free journal prompt and and relaxing meditation on the resources page. As always, stay tuned and keep listening. Welcome, Avi. It's so lovely to have you here with me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Marlene, for the invitation. I'm very excited for the conversation with you today. So good, good morning from New York. <laughs> Yes, I've had a full day. I'm so excited about our conversation today too. And let me firstly say to you, congratulations on the publication of your book. That is so exciting. Published author. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really excited. The book, the formal release date is tomorrow and the, the two launch events are on Wednesday and Thursday. So this is like a really big week for me. So I'm excited to start it with you. Very, very exciting. Thank you. So in your book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, and the subtitle, Risk, Race, Traumatophilia, can you give us sort of an overview of what your book is about? And I think that will lay the basis for our conversation today. Yeah, the, the book is about a number of different things, but I would say that the core, the skeletal outline would be, like the book starts out with asking questions about how we may push back the very traditional understandings that we have of consent, the current models that ripple through through the world, I think, especially after Me Too and after the increased awareness that feminists have fought so hard for about sexual violations and sexual harassment, that the world has become quite enthralled with a notion of consent that is what is called affirmative in the literature. And what is affirmative consent? I'll just define it, even though I think it's going to sound very familiar to people. It's the notion that in order to have 
an ethical sexual engagement with another person, your consent to what they're going to do with you, with your body, how they're going to touch you um, and how you're going to touch them has to be ongoing and enthusiastic uh, so that each new encounter requires new consent and each new contact, each new body zone or each new moment and it requires consent. And this kind of consent has become very magnetizing to people because, you know, it's more or less like straightforward in the sense of there are rules, kind of like there's ways to do it. Um, and the idea is that it offers you a way of knowing whether violation happened. And the hope is that it secures good sexual relations. But in many ways, and I'm certainly not the only one to say this, even though this is a minority opinion, um, in many ways, affirmative consent has failed us. It has not helped us have the kinds of safer sex or, in fact, more pleasurable sex that it has promised. And what it definitely does not do, and this is one of the big pressures that I put on it in the book, is it, it doesn't help us have transformational experiences. In, in many ways, consent, like when we sign up for an encounter, we always get more than what we bargained for, more or something different than what we bargained for. And this is something that the notion of consent cannot help us figure out. So for that, we need something else. And what the book is trying to do is offer a different way of thinking about consent, which is not so much about guarding the self and making sure that we don't get hurt, important as that is, but it's also about risking oneself and risking experience and risking going to places in oneself that may feel surprising or strange. Affirmative consent doesn't want to take you to strange places. It wants to keep you to what is already known. So the, the way of thinking that I offer in the book, and I introduce the notion of limit consent to talk about how close it gets to the limit of something becoming transformational or something going wrong. I introduce this term to talk about a, a consent that I call queer, both in the sense that I think queer queer people are playing more with this consent than kind of like mainstream conversations about consent permit. But but I'm also offering it to argue that, to, to use it in the sense of deviation, like the original kind of like um, etymological sense of the word queer is to deviate. So that there's something deviant, but I argue in an, in an interesting and inspiring way about this kind of consent that deviates from the norms of how right. we're taught and how we're told we should have ethical sexual relations. Uh, so the book starts from there and opens up to, so what happens under these circumstances and what, what can open up when instead of trying to protect yourself in a sexual encounter, you throw yourself into experience. Yeah. So this type of experience obviously poses other questions that you have in your book, such as what if we took more risks with our sexuality? And, you know, how does race play into, into our sex life? Which I also think is, is very interesting. How do we make use of trauma and bad sexual experiences? These are all such interesting uh, questions, which you mm -hmm. obviously ask and answer in your book. When I think about how do we make use of trauma mm -hmm. and bad sexual experiences, mm -hmm. I think that we are in a world where everybody is obsessed with healing at the moment. And the first thing I thought was, what mm -hmm. if you are mm -hmm. on that journey of healing? What if the healing has mm -hmm. not yet occurred? What do we do mm -hmm. when we have bad sexual experiences that are unhealed? 
Yeah, I think this is a great question. I want to pull back for a second and kind of like reflect on your question first before answering it. Uh, Because your question comes from a place which I think is a way of thinking that is very dominant right now, which is that the way to deal with trauma is to heal it, to try to repair it, to make amends, to have some kind of curative process. But what I would say as a psychoanalyst, and I say this as somebody who's a practicing clinician and work with patients day in and day out multiple times a week for years at a time, is that trauma does not get cured. Like there's nobody has ever been delivered back to where they were before a traumatic experience. Like you just never get to go back to who you were before that. That's true. So, you know, you say that's true. And of course, like when you say this, like that's immediately self-evident, right? And yet both in our public conversations and definitely in my field and in psychology, definitely in psychoanalysis, there are all these conversations about healing and working through trauma. And in the book, I talk a little bit about how this idea came about and what what is problematic with this idea, which is that it's it's um it's kind of like it's a red herring. Like that that's an unachievable goal. So what happens if we give up on this fiction that we have been telling ourselves? And that we are told by media, by kind of like the, I'll put this in quote, the helping professions, that the the goal of treatment or the goal of some kind of therapeutic process is to heal. Um, what, What else is possible? You might say, okay, but if you work with patients, like if not healing, what? So part of what I'm, I'm trying to talk about in the book is, is kind of like what other things happen with trauma. And what I mean by that is that I see this in my therapeutic practice. I see this in the in conversations that I have with colleagues that oftentimes individuals do things with their traumata that we struggle to understand as ways of trying to be in communion with the trauma or trying to be in the presence of the experience of trauma as opposed to being overtaken by it or as opposed to trying to heal it or make it go away. One of the things that I try to do in Sexuality Beyond Consent is work with a particular play that preoccupies actually a big chunk of the book. And this play is um, is called Slave Play. It's written by Jeremy O'Harris, and it is the most nominated, Tony-nominated play in the history of American theater. And, you know, it's nominated for 12 Tonys and receives none, which goes to tell you how ambivalent um, the relationship of the public and of critics are mm-hmm. to this play. And, you know, once you see the play, it's easy to understand why, because it's a very difficult encounter with interracial sexual relations, um, especially in the plays mostly preoccupied with the American context and chattel slavery. Um, and what you see in the play is you have three sets of interracial couples that, that are engaged in sexual encounters that for all, for all intents and purposes, make no sense. The black partners are asking their white partners to racially humiliate them and to enact with them scenarios of racial degradation and violence that have been all too damaging and uh-huh. kind of like atrocious in the history of kind of like antebellum slavery in the United States. So the place starts out with this like very startling I would say offering, which makes some people get up and leave. Like whenever I've watched this play, which I've watched it many times, people will get up and and walk out in the first act. And this happens again and again and again. Wow. So 
Mm-hmm. It's it's a really intense play. When when it first started yeah. showing in downtown New York, there were a lot of petitions to shut it down. Uh, there were there was a lot of pushback, primarily from black audiences who were feeling like, okay, this is minimizing the history of slavery. This is turning it into a joke or to a fetish. But part of what happens um, in the course of the play is that the play repetitively and from different angles asks the question. What what about these interracial couples? It makes no claim that this is desires that all Black people have or that dynamics that play out in all interracial couples. But it does ask, what do you do with these desires? How do you understand the desire of somebody who is very traumatized to enter kind of like a more or less scripted uh, repetition of those scenes and be in it? and find erotic excitement or even erotic pleasure in those scenes. And I say almost scripted because part of what happens in the play is, you know, it starts out, you realize at some point that these are kind of like agreed upon sexual scenarios that the partners in each couple have agreed to play out. But what you realize is that as the couples are engaging in them, the white partners actually get carried away and carried into the racism in a way that was not scripted, but was very much predictable. I see. So here now you have, so it's like, it's a, so it's very challenging, right? So even if you want to say, okay, but this is consent, you have two consenting adults, they have agreed on what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. Like they're not bothering, anybody. like, you know, whatever they do in their bedroom, whatever. Yeah. Right. You can take that stance. Yeah. But if you take that stance, you're missing something, which is that questions about what does it mean for a black person to consent or let alone to want to be treated this way sexually, like that opens up a Pandora's box of different kinds of questions. And it takes us into a different domain, which I explore very much in the book, which is kind of like this idea of healing trauma and of returning people to where they were before trauma. Who does that really apply to? Who gets to have the benefit of a pre to trauma. Like if you, for example, are born a black person in the United States and you're born into the intergenerational legacy of slavery, you're not going back anywhere. There's no, there's no back to go to. You were like that from the beginning. You were um, kind of like in in your psyche has been inflected through this racial trauma from the get-go. So what is this back that we're returning to? And whose fantasy is that? I think that to a great degree, healing and the notion of intactness is a white fantasy that then becomes extremely problematic in a variety of different domains. So the the book proposes that one way to understand what's happening in these interracial couples, or rather the reason why it feels so extraordinary and so preposterous is because our relationship to trauma as a culture and definitely in my field has been traumatophobic. And what I mean by that is that we are very afraid of encountering trauma in subjects who have suffered it. So what we try to do is turn away from it and heal it and fix it and make it go away, which doesn't work. When in fact, these couples are best understood as being quite traumatophilic. And traumatophilia is a word that does a lot of of labor in this book. And I will break it down because it's not a word that exists in the everyday vocabulary. It's made up of the word trauma and the word philia, which is a Greek word for having an affinity for or, a, or an attraction to. Like when we say that somebody is a bibliophile, like they really like reading books and they're kind of like they find themselves reading a lot of books. Yeah. Traumatophilia is about 
shifting our conversations around trauma to also allow for the possibilities that we're drawn back to the site of the traumatic and that trauma is a is, is a site, a psychic site that our trauma, our own trauma, that we want to revisit. And that perhaps the question is not so much about exercising our demons or exercising our, our ghosts, but about finding ways to commune with them and be in touch with those histories and be in touch with these difficulties, however painful they might be. And to encounter that in the intersection with arousal or excitement is an especially challenging uh, domain. And this is very much what sexuality beyond consent kind of like makes a nosedive for. Wow, that is definitely a different perspective. You've given me a lot of food for thought. Hmm. Tell me, like, I'm curious, as you're hearing this, kind of like, not having kind of like been studying it for years, like, like I have, like, I'm curious, how, kind of like, what does it make you think about? Like, what, what are the kind of like objections that you find yourself coming to? My background is that I survived rape and attempted murder in my home when I was a young student in my off-campus apartment. Mm -hmm. And that was an instigating incident in my life mm. that I experienced as extremely traumatic. And the impact of that trauma lasted for very many years. And it took yes. different interventions to finally get to a breaking mm -hmm. point where I could say that there was this transformation that you allude to that propelled me to a place that I could leave the trauma in the past, mm -hmm. know that it exists within me, as you say in your book, we know that it exists, and that I can now look at that pain from the perspective of knowing mm -hmm. that It is a pain that exists. Mm -hmm. I understand what it feels like. I recognize it, but it no longer informs my decisions. Mm -hmm. It merely informs mm -hmm. the work that I do. I don't make my decisions any mm -hmm. longer from a place of deep-seated resentment, which is a direct consequence of the mm. traumatic experience. So I don't let that traumatic experience inform my decisions in that way. I mm -hmm. rather let it inform mm -hmm. the work that I do with the podcast, the work right. that I do mm -hmm. with my speaking and work that I do with my book. So, so when you say that, that's sort of where mm -hmm. I go. And yes, I'm also born into trauma because I live in a, in a society mm -hmm. which now is democratic, mm -hmm. but I was born into apartheid. Mm -hmm. If we look at apartheid from my perspective, we are mm -hmm. a traumatized society because of what happened during apartheid. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that very many people learn to have that distance yeah. from mm -hmm. the, their actual yeah. traumatic experiences, whether it is being born into a specific race mm -hmm. or gender mm -hmm. or, or yeah. whatever it may be. That's why I had to pause and think when you pose this question in your book, how do you then navigate life or your sexual encounters mm -hmm. with that trauma? Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I, I want to say like, I'm so struck by the way that you're pulling all this together through kind of like also your own experience. So thank you. I know that you speak about these experiences in your podcast, but I also feel honored that you're bringing them into our conversation. So thank you for that. Um, oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm also thinking of a point you're making, which I think is is very important when you say two things that are as they should be in some tension with each other. When you say, look, I don't make decisions based on my trauma anymore, but my work is very much informed by my trauma, right? So if healing had been kind of like some way of like draining the past from kind of like your psyche or another person's psyche, then we would, we would not expect to be finding uh, trauma kind of like cropping up again here and there. Um, and part of what kind of like interests me in sexuality beyond consent is what about situations where trauma does not crop up in something that is productive, like in making a podcast or creative in the sense of like, oh, you made a painting, like somebody, you know, some people might produce like really beautiful poetry out of their trauma. We certainly have a lot of examples of that in our, in our literature. But what if, what happens when those kinds of traumatic persistences persist through the sexual like, and why is it that if somebody's, if for somebody it, it pops up in the domain of the sexual, we treat it differently than if it pops up in the domain of work or in the domain of creativity or, um, or art? So, for example, we, one of the things that I talk about in the book is how easy it is to be excited about finding trauma in art and to feel, ah, look, this trauma really pushed this person to do this and they've produced this really beautiful thing where you can see their anguish and their suffering and there we can marvel at it. But it's it's different when it shows up in sexuality. Yeah. So there's been ongoing conversations in queer of color critique and especially in black feminism about these kinds of desires. Like, do we see them as kind of like a warping of somebody who has been traumatized and they're so warped that they cannot desire normally, so to speak? Mm-hmm. meaning to desire our trauma. Mm-hmm. Are there other ways to think about these desires? And kind of like the queer of color critique that I'm engaged with in this book actually takes the different stance. It says that this idea of consent where you can only consent from a place of being healed of your trauma, that if you consent from a place of having always been, being always already traumatized, then your consent is not so reliable. Like, for example, in these interracial couples, do black people really get to say, yes, I want to be racially humiliated when racial humiliations are an everyday event in microaggressions in kind of like, we don't have to look at like capital T aggressions, like the micro, the cumulative effects of microaggressions can make something feel humiliating in in the everyday. So under these conditions, does somebody really get to consent or is this just like another Tuesday? Yeah. One of the problems, I would say, with this kind of thinking is that it presumes that consent can only issue from an untraumatized subject or a, tra- a subject that has not been tainted by trauma. And I, I don't know who that subject is. I don't think that, um, obviously, not all traumata are equivalent. Like racial trauma is not something that everybody suffers, definitely not in the same way. Uh, not everybody has the kinds of assaultive experiences that you have described. But the idea that there is, there are subjects who have not been disrupted, I think is a white fantasy. In fact, I think that it's mostly whiteness that imagines that there's a way to be unbroken and to deserve to be unbreakable. When you talk about this consent in the bedroom, 
from an unhealed place. For me, the consent couldn't possibly come from a sort of a neutral, Mm -hmm. informed, healthy place. It will be tainted with whatever other emotions the trauma has left you with. And, 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 and I remember, if I reflect mm-hmm. on my own experiences, and it's interesting because I think you say the opposite, actually, in, in your book. But for me, I remember yes. that mm-hmm. the need for these sexual encounters was driven mm-hmm. by the need for control mm-hmm. as a direct result mm-hmm. of the disempowerment that I experienced as a result of the instigating mm-hmm. event that was the rape and the attempted mm-hmm. murder. So it was not consent from a very healthy place. It was a consent that was completely driven by the need for control in order to obviously suppress an emotion. So it's interesting that you also talk about the, this limit beyond the consent. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is kind of like so interesting what you're saying because I, I want to go back and kind of like stay with the phrase you use. Kind of like I took a note of it. You said like, you know, we usually think of consent as coming from a neutral place. I think I think that's really important. Like that, the only consent we consider to be valid is consent that comes from a neutral place where where you're not under the pressure of this or the influence of that or the memory a difficult memory or a flashback. And and of course, it's easy to see why, right? Because if somebody's like too drawn into that, it may be hard to make decisions, so to speak. But I'm also thinking of how you are very beautifully uh, framing that the need to be in control, which is very understandable and would be surprising actually if it were otherwise, the need to be in control after having suffered such a, kind of like a life-endangering yeah. and very violent experience. That's not from a neutral place either. So the question is, what do we do? How do we think about the subjects who do not have access to this ideal place of neutrality? Like, so once somebody has suffered sexual violence, like there is no place of neutrality anymore. I would argue that even before that there isn't, but now especially so. Right. So what do, we do, what do we do? Do we say, like, do we start questioning all of your desires, all of the, if needing too much control is a problem and not needing enough yeah. control is a problem? Like, how, where do traumatized subjects find a place for agency is another way to talk about the questions that this book asks. Like, how do we think about agency in the aftermath of trauma? In this neoliberal logic of as if like I choose kind of like I choose this as opposed to that out of a smorgasbord of options this neoliberal understanding of agency will not help us in the domain of Mm -hmm. sexuality in the aftermath of trauma it just won't it's just not enough there is no place from which you like anybody who has had an experience of trauma will never be able to choose without that trauma casting a shadow now that is not necessarily like a sentence, like, and now kind of like, it's always going to be like that. That is also a condition of possibility because different things become possible in the aftermath of trauma, even as the trauma may be something that we want to condemn. Like, obviously I'm not arguing for people getting traumatized or if not having good sexual or racial politics or, you know, 
you're violated, whatever. Definitely, I'm not saying that, right? But I'm saying once that happens, that scrambles the way we think about consent and autonomy. And we need different ways. Like, for example, for somebody who has been subjected to a really traumatizing experience and who's trying to craft a life in the aftermath of that experience, the project might not be just about trusting, but also about what does it mean to like not need to be in control that way. And that would feel terrifying. I'm, I'm sure that that would feel terrifying. So what does it mean to tarry at the border of being terrified and yet trying anyway? And I don't say this nonchalantly. It's kind of like part of what I do every day in my clinical work is sit with people who have been traumatized and who are trying to figure out how to be alive as opposed to how to just guard themselves. That, that's part yes. of what trauma does. It immobilizes you. It stalls you. It definitely does. And again, I, I can only speak from my own experience. It was important for me to understand through the work with my mm-hmm. sexologist that that need for control was a direct consequence from what had happened. And then there was the impact of that on my daily life, which was this need for control, promiscuity, and so forth. And so that had to be addressed Mm -hmm. as an issue on its own, even before we could fully go into talk therapy and address that. And so that was a very important piece in the healing process. If I want to get to your question of this proposed consent, I have to get to this place where I'm comfortable and understand what it is that I'm experiencing because at the time, all I could feel was this is really bad and could move forward. And so only at that point, can I say, would I then have been able to to actually give that informed consent? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And certainly I cannot speak about your experience. But And I also understand how what you're saying comes from your experience of having worked on, on these issues for a very long time in your own uh, journey. But here's what I would also offer. First of all, like, I'm not so sure that kind of like consent can ever be informed because the thing is when you, when you're having a sexual encounter or an erotic moment, you never quite know how what the other person does will impact you, even if it's exactly what you contracted for. Like, so somebody could, so here's, here's an example of what I mean. And I, I should also clarify that when I'm talking about limit consent, I'm not just talking about the consent we give to another person. I'm also talking about what we allow ourselves, how far we allow ourselves to go with our own experiences and our own bodies and with our own pleasure. So here's an example from the book, which I think is very telling. I, I, I speak about this patient that I start the book with, um, about whom I write with her consent, um, who tells me that she's in a sexual encounter with a lover and she has agreed that the lover is going to slap her uh, as part of their sexual play. And they have talked about the slap. They have agreed upon it. So you have, so to speak, informed consent. You have affirmative consent. They're both enthusiastic. It's the kind of consent that we told we should want. And she tells me this is something, this is a scene that we talked about very much in the course of her psychoanalysis many, many times. The partner slaps her. And my patient tells me, you know, she slapped me and it was, it was not the slap that I expected. It was the right force at the right part of my face. Like it felt exactly as, as, as I didn't think I would feel. And she said, like, 
this is not the slab I thought I was signing up for. I thought I was going to get a mediocre slab, not one that was so exquisite. And she, safe words, she stops the scene. Not because anything went wrong or because she was violated or because she didn't feel safe with the other person who had in fact done nothing outside the scope of what they had agreed on. What she couldn't tolerate was how overwhelming it felt to her. She couldn't allow herself to go to that place in herself. And because this is somebody who had kind of like the psychic strength and the psychic integrity to not turn this into, well, you violated me or you did something wrong, but was able to note that what was done was what agreed upon. It was just so good beyond what she had expected. We were also able to start talking about what it was like to be so preoccupied with keeping herself within a domain where she wouldn't feel overwhelmed, where she would feel pleasure, but not too much pleasure, where things would happen within. And that's a form of control, we might say, right? Not control of the other person, but also internal control of herself, like not letting herself go to a place where she's really swept up in something, swept up in a sexual experience. So that that's one way to think about kind of like limit consent. And I think that it offers a different perspective to thinking about safety. Yeah. Where the safety is not so much about being kind of like violated, but also about the safety of going to places in ourselves. Like certainly, for example, there are patients I've worked with who have, and women write about this all the time, there's certainly a lot of literature on this, of women who have been raped and then end up developing kind of like rape fantasies as part of their sexual arousal uh, repertoire. And it can look surprising, like why? And, and it can feel very shameful to women who have undergone these experiences, like, but why but I didn't want this? Like, how do I understand that? And I think that part of why it feels shameful, part of why it's surprising, it's because we are not accustomed to thinking of trauma as also yeah. paradoxically. And I, I don't make the rules. It's not like I want it yeah. to be this way, but it is this way. Trauma can also have an erotic tint. Part of it, and in the book, I explain some of the dynamics of why I think that is the case and why trauma also works this way. Um, but if you don't have a way of thinking about that, then all you see in yourself is that you're damaged, uh, as opposed to this is actually how trauma works. Yes, I agree with that. And I think also for some people, BDSM is a controlled environment where they can find the outlet if that is the need. Yeah. And I think that there's the BDSM, you know, one of the things that I talk about very much in the book is the question of sadism. So I'm going to kind of like say a little bit about sadism and then look back into BDSM. Mm -hmm. Sadism comes from the work of the Marquis de Sade, who was a French aristocrat who spent most of his time, most of his life confined in uh, prisons and insane asylums, as they were called at the time. And wrote, he's very well known for having written books of kind of like basically pornographic content and where a lot of very sadistic things happen to the people who are in these encounters. And, you know, there's like pages after pages of sexual torture, sexual, like all, all the way to sexual murder and dismemberment. So it gets like, it, you know, by the, by the time you've read like a few pages, like, you know, there's only so many ways in which the human body can be tortured. So it, it also becomes boring to read him. But part of what's interesting about the sad is that in the midst of these kind of like completely like 
crazy sounding sexual escapades, the characters just stop and start pontificating and they start theorizing and they start philosophizing about state power and religious power and how this, what this has to do with, with sex. And so, so the sad gives us a way of thinking about sexuality that has actually made it into political theory and philosophy. But somewhere around uh, World War II, and after we have the Holocaust, the sad starts getting read differently. And now he gets read as, as having, in a way, anticipated some of the monstrosities that happen in the camps against Jewish people. And now, all of a sudden, everything that he had to offer that had to do with not just kind of like the, 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 the awful depictions of sexual violence, but also the erotic dimensions of that, and also the critiques, how that ties together with critiques of state power, all of that goes away. And Sad becomes mm-hmm. transformed in how he's read. And we are left with this notion of sadism that we have today, of sadism as something monstrous and destructive. BDSM has a different version of sadism. So we have destructive sadism. BDSM gives us what I, I call in the book a sensible form of sadism. And by sensible, I mean you know, like two people get together to enact the scenes. One is going to be the top. The other is going to be the bottom. The top is told kind of like what they can do, what's within the range of what's acceptable to the bottom. And then they will, for example, deliver a spanking and they are the sadist or they will deliver kind of like um, a humiliation scene. And now they are the sadist. But this is very sensible sadism in the sense of like it is, to go back to what we we're saying earlier, it is mutually contracted upon. It's not, it's not real sadism, right? It's an as if sadism. So between this very destructive, monstrous sadism and this as if sensible sadism, we we have like either a really infirm sadism or a really kind of like problematic sadism. And part of what I argue for in the book is a different kind of sadism that is in between these two, which has to do with what what it's like to keep your own feet to the fire and to keep the other person's feet to the fire. And what I mean by that is... For example, in the instance that I was describing earlier with um, the individual who said, you know, I didn't expect to be slapped so exquisitely. What if one pushes back against one's inclination, one's reflex to move away from that when they feel, you know what, like, that's not what I expected. I don't want to go there. What happens if actually the moment that you feel, I don't want to go there, yes. not because it's too bad, but because it's too good or because it's too overwhelming or because I don't know where this takes me. I haven't, I've never opened that door. To open that door, to go through that, you need a certain kind of press. And it's a press that can come from the other. It's also a press that can come from yourself. And that's the kind of sadism that I'm thinking in the book that I'm calling ethical sadism. It's an ethical sadism that many clinicians will recognize, like when we sit with patients and patients don't want to go to a place, there's always a very fine negotiation in the therapist's mind as to not pushing so much that the person is traumatized because of the treatment. But also if every time a patient says, I don't want to go there, you're like, okay, so we won't go, then then the work can be safe, but it's never going to amount to anything, right? So, you know, eventually you have to come brushing up against the limits or interesting the other person, whether it's a patient or yourself, to go beyond the scope of what is absolutely safe. Because safety is is also kind of like the way in which our lives get stalled. You you can be very safe, but if all you're doing are safe things, you're not growing, 
definitely experiences, transformational experiences are not experiences that have to do with safety. Transformational experiences have to do with encounters that meet us at the core of our being. And that place is an overwhelming place, de facto. Yeah, I agree. Wow. You articulate that so beautifully. I agree with you. I think that we find that growth when we push past some of these boundaries. But when it comes to to trauma, like in the scenario that you've sketched, it's almost like you have a choice to make within yourself. You're already saying something that is very important and which is at the epicenter of what I say about consent in the book. So I want to flag it and kind of like say it differently for our readers, which is for our listeners, which is that, you know, consent is primarily an internal affair before it becomes an interpersonal affair. Like it's more about where you let yourself go and what you risk about yourself in many ways. You know, we have been told that consent is about safety. I think consent is also about expansion, but it's about the ethical expansion of the self. But not if we do it affirmatively, not if it's about, well, I said you can go up to 2.2, but if you go to 2.3, you violated me. Obviously, we don't want people who say, if you say 2.2 and the other person does 2.4, absolutely it's a violation. So it's not about kind of like, I'm not trying to give an alibi to violators, but I am trying to say, what does the 2.2 versus the 2.3 means? And what happens if in the course of an encounter, it's a 2.3 and you find yourself aroused or excited or interested or moved? And what if you don't treat that as a panic moment, but actually relax into it and let yourself flow into that? Like what might arise out of such kinds of experiences? And one of the things that I come back to again and again in the book is that kind of like these are extremely intimate experiences. This is intimacy of a different sort than the intimacy of I feel safe with you. It's an intimacy of stepping into the fray of something together because the person who will go to 2.3 is also risking something. I mean, that would be the ethical sadist in, in my terminology. The risking that they may hurt you, and I'm not talking here about people who don't care. I'm talking about people who actually have a very big investment in caring. One one of the things that happens in slave play, which is very interesting, is that what we see time and yeah. again is that the black partners are asking to be racially humiliated, and one white partner in particular has a lot of trouble with that, and he just won't let himself go there, not because it doesn't he can't tune into that, but precisely because he can and he's afraid of it. So there we see both the the limit consent within him that he cannot allow that to come to. But then it also becomes a problem with his partner who says, but I have asked you for this. I want this. And he takes Mm -hmm. the stance of, you shouldn't want this. You're a black woman and I'm a white man and I'm not going to do this to you. And and she says to him in a really paradoxical way, who are you to say? I mean, she doesn't say it in those words, but she says, who are you to say what I should want and not want? And kind of like, so we begin to see that Consent also works through this kind of protectionism, affirmative consent, through this kind of protectionism that can also be condescending and disempowering. Yeah, it's not a place where we want to be, especially not in the bedroom. I think it depends on what we mean by empowerment, because there's also different, I think that there are forms of power that have to do with being in control, and there are forms of power that have to do with opening oneself up to experience. That's a different way of thinking about power. Not all power is activity or limit setting. Some power is also about the giving up of something. 
Yeah, some exciting food for thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that it's challenging, especially like, you know, in the domain, in the ways that we think about sexuality today. I know, I know that, and what I'm saying is by no means not controversial. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait for the listeners to grab a copy of your book. I mean, you've given us some interesting insights and, yeah. you know, I just obviously love the way that you've just captured the essence of your book in, in this episode to certainly give us that sneak peek into the world of consent. Avi, this has been so enlightening. Is there any specific links that I can share with the listeners if they want to get a copy of your book and, of course, follow you on social media? So listeners who are interested can check out my website. It's avgiseketopoulou.com, A-V-G-I-S-A-K-E-T-O-P-O-U-L-O-U.com. I will link it in the show notes. Thank you. I can send you a link for the show notes uh, to the press where people can order the book if they want. And your listeners should know, I plan to follow every comment that is made publicly about my book. So if somebody wants to engage with me, if somebody reads a review, I'll read those reviews. I'll, I'll be in conversation with people publicly. And uh, my social, I think, best place is Instagram, where I am with the handle A-V-G-O-L-I-S 98, which I can also send to you to add. That's great. Fantastic. I'm going to leave that in there. Is there any last words of inspiration that you want to leave our listeners with? I would say there's, it's very hard to summarize some of the really difficult things that we're talking about in a few, kind of like even in an hour, even with a conversationalist as game to go into that as you. So I, I would be really curious. I'm really interested in what people would think of these ideas. So, you know, follow me on Instagram, make comments. I post a lot of content about the book and about other events there. So, you know, just engage. Like I'd love to engage with people, especially from different parts of the world. Yeah, this is a topic that needs conversation, that, that needs to have a spotlight on it. And um, social media is just the perfect platform to start that engagement, to start this conversation. Avi, it was so wonderful to have you with me. Thank you so much for coming to share your wisdom with us mm -hmm. and for just helping crystallize Thank these very much. complex issues, you know, and intricate issues for us. And all the best with your book launch and book activities that is coming up. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited to have had this conversation with you. And thank you for all the important work that you're doing in your podcast. Thank you so much. Bye. That wraps up this podcast episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy my podcast, please take a minute to give me a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast directory so you don't miss an episode. Please consider following My Scented Life on Facebook and Instagram for daily inspiration. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. You can catch me again in the next episode. Same time, same place. Sending you lots of love and light. Bye.